podcast. Out of the billions of thermal tubes inside your computer, through some necessary wires and pipes, into your kitchens and living rooms and cars and office spaces and halfway houses. A veriform bouquet of content, delivered with precision and love, to you. It's magic. That's the only way to look at it. Magic, except it's not magic at all. A podcast is every bit as explainable as your toaster. As explainable as the crushing nettles you feel in your chest whenever you think of your father. Never before has so little meant so much to so many. Podcast. Say it with me. Podcast. Please, I don't want to be the only one saying it. Can't you feel your lungs starting to burn with the truth of it? And yet there's still so much we can't know. We're just doing figure eights across the surface of it. How about some history? The podcast was invented as a way for people with computers to tell people with computers things through their computers. Some of these things are, hey, I'm over here, and I have certain feelings, and maybe if we thought about it this way. Through time, improvements have been made on the podcast until it feels ordinary and natural. But it's not natural. It's a frozen lake, iced over with enchantment. And like a frozen lake, this podcast is only here for a short time. And when it's gone, it's just back to being a lake with birds and reeds and shit. Where's the enchantment? Uh-oh. It's in you now. All you can do is spread it around. Hello, I'm Nick Offerman. You're listening to The Organist, the podcast of The Believer Magazine and KCRW. Podcast. It gets better with time. It moves outward and upward with inchworm determination. It is here. It is inside you. It is about to begin. Pop music, pop culture, movies, novels, news stories, strange lines and commercials, political speeches. This is all part of the noise of real life. This is how we orient ourselves in, in the world or, or even compose ourselves out of this what can seem like random detritus that's falling down um, like weather all the time. That's Grill Marcus, uh, the eminent literary and rock music critic. I'm Andrew Leland, the non-eminent host of this podcast and an editor of The Believer magazine. And this is The Organist, the podcast, the brand new podcast of The Believer. Uh, it's really culture as weather. Grill Marcus uh, here is describing his approach to his monthly column, Real Life Rock Top 10. And we'll be hearing more from him and his selections later in the show. He could also just as easily be describing this podcast itself in its relationship with all forms of culture, high and low, medium, large, big and tall. Instead of focusing on a single theme, this podcast will range widely, foraging and hunting and gathering for cultural touchstones, touchy culture stones. For example, in this, our first episode, the February 2013 episode of The Organist, we have George Saunders talking about the role that voice plays, literal voices, his literal voice that you'll hear, as well as voices that he performs in his fiction and how it informs his writing of fiction. 
The writer Amber Scora has a story about the way that visiting China as a Jehovah's Witness missionary ended up creating the space for her to defect from the Jehovah's Witnesses. The editor of Pitchfork.com, Brandon Stosi, brings us a series of five-word record reviews. And we'll look at the question of whether the sound of a squeezed grapefruit or the sound of a squeezed lemon sounds more like a crawling insect in the context of a new film. But first, MC Schmidt and Drew Daniel of the band Matmos from Baltimore have a new album called The Marriage of True Minds. They're going to demonstrate how the record was made by breaking one of its songs down into its component parts. So here's Schmidt and Daniel. You've been led into a room. You're made comfortable on a mattress. Headphones are put over your ears, through which you can hear a gentle white noise. And your eyes are covered with ping pong balls cut in half, and a soft red light is glowing in your face, and you've been told to count down from 20 to zero, and you've been told that when you hit zero, you're supposed to empty your mind, and you've been told that once you do, you're going to start to receive a psychic transmission from a member of the band Matmus. And there's a video camera that's going to record you describing out loud anything that you hear in your mind or anything that you see in your mind. And you get the feeling that these guys are going to take the transcript of that and they're going to turn it into music. You are the creator of the new Matmus record. Hi, I'm Drew. And I'm Martin. And we're Matmus. We are that band. That made an album called The Marriage of True Minds, which is based on telepathy. So we usually employ these, these conceptual tactics to create our records. In this case, we're going to break down a song called Etheric Vehicle for you. So it, it did all start that way. Psychic Percipient was laid down. In this case, Keith Fullerton Whitman was his name, who also happens to be a pretty brilliant synthesist in his own right. And he came out with, with these images in response to Drew's psychic sending. Okay, visually, I'm seeing an inverted pentagram, oddly, in the shape of a small metal bracket. The word grandiose just popped into my head. Chinese checkers, the Swiss Alps. I see the shape of an S spline curve. And the noise I could make out distant. Gregorian singing, mast singing. I can sort of see shapes like re-entry and coming back to orbit from space with sort of contrails and a thin melody like upper whistling. The word piecemeal and a long, non-repeating melody, sort of a long, sneaking, pentatonic melody with no regular rhythm. Okay, so since that was what he gave us, uh, we, in a process of elimination and editing, decided to ignore quite a lot, and we decided to focus on these elements. Small metal bracket, Chinese checkers, masked singing, whistling, sort of a long, sneaking, pentatonic melody. We started by focusing on the last sentence of his psychic session uh, in which he sees a sneaking, pentatonic melody. That seemed to be a, a nice musical hook upon which to hang the song. I took advantage of this. I have a synthesizer that where I can make the entire keyboard only play five notes. 
Um, and I had a very brief musical education when I was 11 and 12, but that left me very good at playing all the white notes. And so I made all the white notes be those five notes. was inspired by the metal brackets image and I decided to, you know, adjust, shall we say, the implications of the phrase metal brackets to include handcuffs. I bought some handcuffs on eBay and some shackles on eBay, made noises with them and then chopped them up with my laptop to make some rhythms which sound like this. So we were afraid of the phrase Gregorian chants. Yeah. And we decided to concentrate on massed singing. So we didn't want to go the Enigma route, and instead we decided to ask a friend of ours, uh, Jen Wasner from the band Y Oak, to record some vocals. The only problem was that she was on tour, but happily she happened to have a nice recording rig in her van. Pretty sweet. So here are Jen Wasner's vocals to interpret the phrase massed singing. Once we had all of these elements in place, it was time to assemble it into a song and then mix it, which Martin did at the studio Snow Ghost in Montana. And here's the results of what we put together from Keith Fullerton Whitman's Psychic Session. Let's hear from Ross Simonini, our executive producer and the Believer's Interviews editor, who recently sat down with the writer George Saunders. I remember reading the first few pages of Pastoralia, the second story collection from George Saunders. He drops you right in the middle of this little language world, as he calls it. The first time I saw him read, he started pulling all these voices out of his mouth, and it was so unlike any of the readings I'd ever been to. I had the chance to interview Saunders. We talked a little about the distinctive way he reads. And so to start, he read the first couple of pages from the first story in his new collection, which he told me he read using three distinct voices. Uh, this is from a story called Victory Lap. Three days shy of her 15th birthday, Allison Pope paused at the top of the stairs. Say the staircase was marble. Say she descended and all heads turned. 
Where was special one? Approaching now, bowing slightly, he exclaimed, How can so much grace be contained in one small package? Oops. Had he said small package and just stood there? Broad prince-like face, totally bland of expression? Poor thing, sorry, no way. Down he went. He was definitely not special one. What about this guy behind Mr. Small Package, standing near the home entertainment center, with a thick neck of farmer integrity yet tender ample lips, who, placing one hand on the small of her back, whispered, Dreadfully sorry you had to endure that bit about the small package just now. Let us go stand on the moon. Uh, in the moon, in the moonlight. Had he said, let us go stand on the moon? If so, she would have to be like, eyebrows up. And if no wry acknowledgement was forthcoming, be like, ah, I'm not exactly dressed for standing on the moon, which as I understand it is super cold. Come on, guys, she couldn't keep treading gracefully on this marble stairwell in her mind forever. That dear old white hair in the tiara was getting all like, why are those supposed princes making that darling girl march in place ad nausea? Plus she had a recital tonight and had to go fetch her tights from the dryer. That's about three voices, I guess. After listening to you read your work aloud a few years ago, I've since, while reading your work, had your voice in my head. And I wondered, have you ever had this experience with a writer? Uh, you know, it was Steve Martin is somebody, when I, when I was young, I read his book, Cruel Shoes, and, uh, then, and saw him live afterwards. And, uh, and the whole book kind of you know, came alive in his voice. Yeah, for sure. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, from from my work, I'm not sure because I'll I'll read that this story, Victory Lap, sometimes, and some people will come up and, and say, you know, I I liked it when I read it, but when I heard you, it made more sense, you know. So there, you're like, well, I don't know if that's you know a good thing or a bad thing. I, I hear these voices differently than I do them. I, I'm sort of limited as an actor. Like I have about three voices I can do, uh, and when I'm writing it, I hear a much more subtle version, for example, of that girl. But, you know, I've got basically four, four switches I can throw and do, uh, do voices. But, you know, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, one of the things you could do for credibility there is um, not really imitations, but you could sort of riff on a, a kind of invented character. So somebody would make up a guy, you know, and give him a goofy name, and then we'd sort of banter uh, back and forth in his voice or something. And, uh, you know, you only did it with the people you were really close to because it, it was easy to... to step over into humiliating, uh, self-humiliating territory. But that was kind of a fun thing to do, kind of improv uh, where you were not only doing a funny voice, but you were kind of characterizing as, as you went. Um, so one thing we used to do is we, we, I was on a basketball team and, uh, but didn't play, me and my, my uh, friend. So we made up this whole backstory for this, uh, uh, this team that we were sort of rivals with. And we had, you know, uh, we literally had sheets of paper with their home life on it and the names of their siblings. And these poor kids, they, you know, they had no idea. So they would come out and we would do their voices and kind of, you know, and, and uh, it, was, it was not that funny, actually. Our, our teammates got irritated with us because we were kind of being a little bit thespianish and, and, and it didn't seem to be affecting the outcome of the game. It sounds a little bit like the beginnings of fiction writing. No, it really was because there was such weird pleasure. Like this team was a parish team, so they were older than us. So all the guys were kind of muscular and they had body hair and we were in seventh or eighth grade. So we had this one guy that we, we um, he was a real rough looking little guy. And so we, we decided his name was going to be Louis the Lizard. So whenever he would come out, we'd we both together shout, it's Louis the Lizard and the Sewer Rat Gang, you know, which made, made no sense. But then the fun part was to go home and kind of say, what, what was his mother like? You know, what would he do uh, if he got in trouble at school? And it sounds, it sounds insane, but it was definitely fiction writing 101. You know. the, the fiction almost comes out of the voices in a exactly, way. Exactly, yeah. And that, for me, that's really, really true that the, um, 
the, the quicker I can kind of forget about concepts and themes and intentions and just kind of lose myself in some kind of riffing, the better I am. Because then the energy gets up. Uh, I think it, you know, it encourages more communication between reader and writer. And then the other stuff, like the theme, it, it does come in, it, it, but it comes in sort of honestly and kind of from the side instead of, you know, you, the, uh, the, the writer kind of shitting it down on, on your, is that kind of say that on the radio, shitting here? But, but you know, it, there's that, when I was younger, my, my mode of storytelling was I had something that you, I had to tell you and you were supposed to just sit there and take it and I was going to stage manage the whole thing whether you liked it or not, you know. And that, you know, anybody who's tried that, it's just a, it's a very low energy thing. So for me now, if I can get lost in the voice especially, uh, that's kind of like 80% of the struggle. You lose yourself in it, and then of course later you, you cut it back and shape it. And you start sort of, uh, sort of sniffing the air for not so much theme, but for the next interesting thing that might happen given what you've already done. Do you read aloud while you're writing? I don't. I, I, and partly because of my voices are, are so kind of blunt. You know, they're not as, as interesting as the ones I'm hearing. So, um, you know, because part of the thing with voice, too, I think, is you, um, you, you discover one. But if it stays uh, static too long, then that's no good either. So you discover one, and in the process, that voice teaches you its next, its higher registers in a certain way. So if I was reading them out loud, I think I would be too... Um, focused on trying to maintain it, but when, somehow when it's on the page and you're, you're um, what would you say, you're, you're sort of engaging with it through a vision, then a, a, a certain voice will then subject, will suggest a sub-voice, you know, uh, so it's kind of a, in the best case, the voice would continue to evolve through the whole piece, you know, that you could sort of identify it as being related to the beginning, but it's not necessarily just a duplication of that, yeah. When you say a sub-voice, what do you mean by that? Well, um, I'm trying to think. Okay, so there's a story, the title story in here. There's a, there's a kid who's a kind of a, you know, like a broadly stated, he's kind of a reject, you know. And uh, the way I kind of stumbled on him was to say, okay, I need, I need a kid and then have him start talking. And it's kind of like, uh, I can't do it, but kind of a slightly, I can't, I can't even do it, but it's a nerdy voice. It's a nerdy, smart kid voice, a little superior. So I started doing that. And, but in the process, um, the sub voice was he veered off into this kind of, consistent pattern of fantasizing about rescue, which I didn't, I didn't know that he would do that. Um, but just from continually kind of lowering myself into his voice, you know, you get a little bored with what you've done. And also in a, in a not in a, a mystical way, but in some kind of um, like generative way, doing a voice uh, suggests a slight, just tonal variations, which when you think of it, a tonal variation of a voice is identical to character, you know, to character expanding and so on. So Kind of hard to talk about, but um, if you, I feel if I can get into a kind of a, a, a good vein of a voice, then all kinds of exciting things happen. Whereas if I'm trying to uh, dictate the story's progress by some kind of conceptual mechanism, then then the energy doesn't get engaged. So it sounds like voice leads to character, then leads to stories. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, and like in this story that I'm reading, I won't give it away, but she... Uh, originally, uh, that in that victory lap, I just had the idea of writing a little sketch a la um, Chekhov in this thing called um, After the Opera. It's a little beautiful five or six page sketch of this young girl coming home from a social thing. But uh, in the midst of that, she uttered a certain, she, she kind of made a statement of belief, you know, that was basically kind of like, you know, if you want to be good, all you got to do is be good. 
You know, you just have to be strong. And I thought, oh, you little smarty pants, you know. <laughs> and so then, the st- then she believes that, and I believe that she believes that, and I kind of like her for believing that. But then, as a storyteller, your job is to poke that a little bit and say, really, is that is that right? And then, that's where kind of what we call plot comes from, I guess, in that case, you know. So it's interesting, it, and that's completely just she just blurted that out one morning when I was farting around trying to make her voice, you know. So it's it's kind of mysterious. And then, I, and then the, the interesting thing, and I don't really understand it, but is at some, at some point, you know, you're writing a story and a guy uh, gets a coffee at a coffee shop. The coffee shop person has to say something. And there's that weird moment where you, quote, unquote, reach up into that basket. Now, I, I don't really understand how that works, but often a voice will just supply itself to me. And, and the quicker it does it and the more naturally and the less thought-laden, the, more, the happier I am. Like somebody just suddenly starts talking in a Boston accent. I'm like, great, good. There's a reason for that, you know. But uh, so I don't know. I mean, to me, the funny thing about, about writing is that 99% of what I, at least in my case, that I'm doing is kind of hard to talk about. It's just like, well, I don't know. You just pull the switch, you know. Or you, um, And sometimes you're tempted to go beyond that and be more reductive. But in, tr- in truth, it's, it's a much more, for me, a much more playful uh, kind of almost – kind of ornery thing, you know, where you, uh, why do you do a certain voice? Because I can, you know, because it's fun, because it's sort of a little bit uh, uh, out of control or, you know. The voice in general is this sort of distinctly American vernacular, but it's not specific. It's sort of just this soup of (laughs) American dialect. Is that how you think of it, or do you ever try to point to, like you said a moment ago, you said Boston? Yeah, that when I, even as I said that, I said that's bullshit. You're not, you're, you're never, you could never do a Boston, Boston accent. You know, I can't do it. Uh, so no, I actually, it's and again, it's like I really can't do an, an original accent. I, I I don't have that much interest in it, and I can't really do it. So then uh, the default is to do, uh, you know, I I just think if you if language, if if you can get the um, language to feel. I always say jangly, you know, on the page. To look and to feel jangly. Um, I'm not too worried about what the referent is. You know, if, if there's some kind of weird dialect but no one can say what it is, I kind of feel like, yeah, all right, well, it'll, it'll eventually show up. It, do, it doesn't have to have a linear um, sort of connection to anything that's actually spoken. Um, yeah, and so I, I guess I, I, I sort of like the idea of, I always talk about this idea of overflowing addic- addiction. So in other words, if somebody... Uh, is as they are in a lot of my stories, not very articulate. Uh, that's fine with me, you know. And I, I want to kind of respect their mode of inarticulateness, but then say to myself at some point, all right. So even though this guy can't communicate, it doesn't mean he's partial. He, you know, as a human being, he's as he's as full as uh, the most brilliant person in the world. But he's got kind of a clogged uh, uh, output valve, you know. So then the the idea would be if you had a really passionate full human being who couldn't express himself, how would he poorly express himself? And my working model is that that's poetry also, you know, or maybe that's poetry, period. Uh, so that's kind of the working the working model. Do you try to specify place ever or to give yourself specifics or do you like to leave it open-ended? I really leave it open-ended. I, I, like the, I love the idea of, say, a cycle story set in the same town, but I just don't somehow... Whenever I do that, I feel like it clips me off a little bit. Like if I, for a while, I lived in uh, Pittsburgh, New York, and it was a beautiful little Erie Canal town with an old history. And I thought, oh, that'd be cool to write. Uh, I had an idea to write a story that was basically all the ghosts of the town graveyard kind of talking, you know. So I did a lot of research about 
uh, upstate New York, and every time I'd start to write it, I felt like I was in a little tiny room. I'd have a funny idea and go, well, that wouldn't actually happen in upstate New York, you know, or they didn't know about, uh, you know, balloon animals in 19, you know. So uh, I found that the best thing for me to do is just say, place, it'll show up, you know. So about as far as I go is I'll sometimes need a city name, you know, and I kind of, all right, well, I'll always put them in upstate New York, you know, that kind of thing. But I somehow for me, the um, I, I came across this quote from Flannery O'Connor that I'm now, you know, parroting all over the place, but it's, it's um, something like a man can choose what he writes, but he can't choose what he makes live. So that has been uh, a real true thing for me that you, you might have an idea that you're going to be the great poet of the upper middle class or the the Boston, uh, you know, uh, bard or something. But I think your your talent will tell you what you can do and what you can't do. And if you can make the story come alive, then that's your thing. Whether you know, I didn't. I really wanted to be a real somber realist. You know, as a kid. I mean, that was really what I had in mind. And uh, well, you you know, you don't get to. So yeah. So place for me isn't isn't so place it, sort of. Um, it, it appears on it, it again. It appears on its own, and I don't care that much about it, really. Do you feel the same way with time? Because I've noticed, uh, especially with the more uh, science fiction leaning mm-hmm. stories, it's unclear at what point this story takes place. But do you ever consider that? No, I, re- I really don't. I, I feel like you just you know you're just making an alternate space, uh, and it's a it's primarily a language space, so. I guess the thing I'm mostly concerned with is if a reader at some point went, wait a minute, what year is this? Then I'd want to address it. But mostly uh, it feels like the like in this book, The Sample of Girl Diaries, it's future kind of, you know. And I don't think – I my imaginary reader would not ever say, wait a minute, when is this? They kind of go, yeah, it's sort of a little bit down the line but not too far. Uh, so I don't, I don't really I, – I think you're really making a little machine, a little language machine – and that thing then acts on the reader. And you don't even, I don't think you really even know what it does. I mean, you know in real time, line to line, kind of whether it's doing what you want it to do. But in the end, I think the, the most fun I've had with writing is where I get to the end and go, what the fuck? I have no idea what that's supposed to do, you know, except I've been through it enough times that I'm pretty satisfied with whatever it's doing or I've kind of uh, worked through its internal logic enough times and taken out the dead wood and put in some more lively wood enough times that uh, I feel like it makes a pretty good carnival ride. You can hear the full interview with George Saunders at radio.believermag.com. Bikini Kill was a band that formed in Olympia, Washington in, in 1991. Is that supposed to be doing that? It was Kathleen Hanna's first band. It was the first riot girl band. It, it, it was a band that, you know, in, in some ways rediscovered the the genius of the Sex Pistols in the sense of being so bad, people were absolutely dumbfounded. We're Bikini Kill, and we want revolution, girl Uh, they would get on stage, and some people, particularly girls in their teens, would be shocked that anyone had the nerve to do what this person, Kathleen Hanna, was doing. The way she was exposing herself, both physically 
and 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 psychically in in what was coming out of her mouth, what she was doing on stage. They made um, they made a ton of records, and they just started reissuing their stuff. They put out the first kind of legitimate EP uh, they ever made as uh, as a reissue now, just called Bikini Hill. It's scary stuff. It's very funny. It's incredibly sardonic and sarcastic. Songs about incest, songs about rape that never take a perspective you expect. But, you know, at the same time that uh, I was listening to this, a friend um, sent me a, a YouTube clip from a Bikini Kill show in 1992. <laughs> it's glossolalia. There isn't a single recognizable word, and yet what comes out is music, too. It's, it's, and you suddenly realize that what seems so extreme in what Kathleen Hanna was doing was just a warm-up, um, was just what you could take, what you could translate, and that, that it's going to be followed by something you, don't, you have no idea where you are and what's happening and, and what this person is doing and why she's doing it. And then she finishes. This is actually something she... This isn't, you know, a psychotic breakdown. It just seems like it. This is a piece of art. This is an, an, this music and that performance. They're as explosive as anything pop music has ever offered. So I'll hear something about like the United Nations or like the financial crisis and it will trigger some memory I have of the things that we were taught that like these prophecies in the Bible said that people would be throwing their money in the streets right before Armageddon. And it's like, Oh my goodness, are people, it's, it's almost come to that, you know, like it's kind of strange. Cause I think that I've logically sort of intellectually gotten rid of it, but it's still somehow bound up in you. That's Amber score, a children's book producer and writer living in New York city. Amber was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and she spent the first 30 years of her life consumed by the religion. Her missionary work eventually brought her to China, where she preached the Witnesses' apocalyptic message underground, since all but the five officially state-recognized churches are illegal in China. For the organist, Amber tells the story of how her mission to China led to her intellectual transformation and the rejection of her faith. I think most people probably have had a Jehovah's Witness in their class or someone they knew in the neighborhood that was a Jehovah's Witness kid growing up. And almost everyone will say the same thing, like, oh, they're really nice. And that's true. I think Jehovah's Witnesses are in general really nice people, good people. Um, but they'll also be like, oh, but it was really weird that you guys couldn't celebrate Christmas or the, that person was always a little bit aloof. They couldn't really come over to my house to play. And so basically that's kind of how I grew up, um, sort of like in a world within the greater world. Um, it's basically the Jehovah's Witness world. Jehovah's Witnesses feel that Armageddon or the end of the world is coming. And I was pretty positive it was going to come basically any minute from the time I was five years old. And I was also kind of a very serious child. So I sometimes think that I took the religion more seriously than some of the other kids. Um, I would study all the time and I would I was very neurotic. I would think about Armageddon all the time because you would hear all these um, talks at the meetings and all of your association was sort of 
centered around this idea that what bonded you all together was that the end of the world was coming and only you and the other Jehovah's Witnesses were going to survive. I also felt this responsibility to preach and to save other people because the only way to get saved was for someone to convert and become a Jehovah's Witness. So um, that basically set the stage where I, all starting from quite young, uh, all through high school, I would um, do pioneering, they called it. It's weird because you do grow up somewhat within the world. It's not a totally cut off sort of cult environment, but there's a, a lot of restrictions on what you can listen to, what you can watch. Like I remember we, my mom took us to go see Splash, you know, <laughs> and then I think that they said shit in the movie and then my mom was horrified and it was really kind of like a big deal that we had seen this movie with a swear word in it. The basic thing when you're a Joe's Witness is that because they don't want you to get distracted, they also don't want you to get tempted, you're constantly discouraged from pursuing anything that you're interested in. From then I sort of embarked on this course of life, which was being a missionary in Canada. And what it means is that you spend like 70 or 90 hours a month doing the preaching. And then I got a part-time job to support myself, basically enough to cover my expenses and rent a room in an apartment. We had a whole book of how to overcome objections people had. So basically anything you've said to refuse a Joe's Witness that comes to your door, we have a book that tells us how we should respond to it. So I bet the first response you might say is, I'm not interested. I can overcome that one. <laughs> okay, if you said you were busy, I'd say, oh, yes, we all have busy lives these days. But what if five minutes could answer a question such as, why does God permit suffering? If you have five minutes, I could tell you the answer to that question. I knocked on doors for years and, you know, basically got no response. Um, and then there was a lot of immigrants that were moving to Vancouver from mainland China at that time. And so, of course, sometimes when we would go call on the basement suites or the apartments, we would come across new immigrants. And because they wanted to integrate into Canadian society, when a Western person, English-speaking Canadian, would show up at their door willing to talk to them, this was something like they, they thought was great. Um, so also we would help them a lot too. Like we were, we wanted to be friends with them and we wanted to also convert them. And that was sort of the way that the whole thing would work for everybody. There were some sisters in the congregation who um, had immigrated from China or from Hong Kong. They knew some Chinese. And so they started some Chinese lessons in order to facilitate converting these new immigrants. So I decided to start learning. And it sort of changed my life. Being a missionary in Vancouver suddenly became so much more interesting. And in my mind, I thought that these Chinese people, how I viewed them was that I thought, oh, here they've come from this godless communist country and this is their first chance and they're just starving spiritually. And now God has arranged that they've found me and I've found them. So it was really fulfilling for a Jehovah's Witness because basically I had tons of people to study the Bible with, which I didn't have before. I was just walking door to door, freezing my butt off. <laughs> and I thought, well, in China, there's 1.3 billion people just like these people in my neighborhood. And I feel like I have this responsibility because Armageddon's going to come and we all know the world's going to end and only Jehovah's Witnesses will be saved. So I need to go and give them a chance. So that was why I decided to make my way to China. There's a, actually a number of religions who operate underground in China because there's only, I think, five churches that are officially recognized by the government. 
um, and can meet in public. So in China, even when I got there, I did manage to get put in touch with some people who were Jehovah's Witnesses there, but we just had to meet secretly and um, be very careful about how we conducted either a meeting or our preaching because the government monitors all text messages, phone calls, emails. We basically had to use code. Um, When I land in Shanghai, I remember just feeling like everything was gray and overwhelming. It's so huge. And then basically what the next step was, even those friends weren't allowed to tell you anything about where they met or anything, but the next step was to try and establish yourself a little bit in China and sort of get a job as a cover and an apartment, somewhere to live. That was the first step. And then the next step was once all that was in place, someone would come and let you know what you needed to know in order to conduct your preaching work. There was a brother. He he got my number, uh, I guess, through the organization and texted me one day after I had been there maybe for a month or so. And he said that we should meet in a restaurant. So we met and he basically was very to the point, quickly outlined for me what it was that I had to do in order to carry out my preaching work. And it was astounding to me because basically it was the opposite of everything that I had been taught at home as a Jehovah's Witness my whole life. We were told that in China, because the work is underground, we can't have meetings. You basically have to just not hang out with your Jehovah's Witness friends so much, but just try and make friends with worldly people. And then through these friendships, you would try to slowly turn the friendship into an opportunity for Bible study and conversion once you had checked out their background to make sure they were safe. It was kind of scary because I didn't know what I was doing and I really didn't know much about Chinese society or how it ran. But he gave me sort of this framework, which one of the things was to watch out for anyone who was a member of the Communist Party or in the army or relatives that were in the Communist Party. So you feel like maybe that will be obvious or something. But when you are on the ground in China, it's not obvious. And there's even a lot of people that are members of the Communist Party just because of their jobs. Like I think to be certain positions like government jobs, you have to be a member of the Communist Party. But it doesn't mean that these people are communists. I mean, when you're walking around Shanghai, it does not feel communist at all. So that was kind of one of the qualifiers. And um, you just had to kind of feel people out. There was really no way of knowing, but there was sort of layers of protection. You wouldn't tell people where you lived. You wouldn't tell people your real name. You wouldn't have them over to your home or you would only sort of meet with them in random places, different places all the time. So the first time I approached someone, um, I was pretty nervous because I didn't, still didn't speak Chinese that well. And I did kind of feel like if someone told me they were a communist, or I probably wouldn't even understand anyway. <laughs> but I went to, um, I decided to go to a bookstore. So I went down to a bookstore uh, near Nanjing Road, which is in the central part of Shanghai. It's very crowded. And I definitely sort of milled about for a while and then finally picked a target, which was this young girl that looked really nice. And she was in the English book section. So I thought, okay, well, at least I'll have have a way to communicate when it gets down to the nitty gritty past hello, basically. Uh, Her name was Jean, but I changed her name. I'm just saying (laughs) to protect her. But anyways, I just basically said hello to her in Chinese. And then she was really excited. I mean, again, it was just this perfect relationship because we could both get what we wanted from this relationship, which was I wanted to convert her and she wanted to probably learn more about Western culture or have a Western friend. (laughs) I was really nervous because I didn't know how to make friends with worldly people and then Chinese people on top of it. But it probably was easier for me to make a new worldly friend that was Chinese than it would have been for me to make a a worldly American friend because there was just at least a a difference that was already 
accepted between us. So uh, Jean was very hospitable, and she right away invited me over for dinner. I think it was the next weekend. So when I got to Jean's house, and it was the first time I'd ever been inside a home in China um, of a local person, we basically just sat and talked, and I had a sort of running commentary in the back of my mind thinking, okay, when do I bring up the Bible? How do I bring up the Bible? When do I, how do I find out if she's communist? So I didn't know where to begin. I, I didn't bring up anything about the Bible. We were supposed to maybe meet them a few times before we would get into these sorts of other topics. And instead, afterwards, we went to Ikea, which was around the corner from our house. Chinese people in China love it because there's these places to sit and free bottomless coffee and they can try sort of pseudo Western food. So it was kind of a hangout place. So we went there to hang out after. And then subsequently, we would quite often meet there for our Bible studies. As I became more comfortable, um, I definitely started to get a lot of Bible students there. So in time, I started to have yeah more Bible studies than I could count. I felt really lucky because in one way, doing that volunteer work, the Bible teaching work there, I got to be on really intimate level with people and really get to understand their lives. So in that way, it was really good. But the other thing was I had to tell them that if they didn't convert, they were going to die at Armageddon. So there was always the downside. <laughs> and then on the other hand, I was also starting to make friends of, with Western people who were non-witnesses as well, because I would go to Chinese class and I was just opened up to this world that I had always been taught to be close to. And that was just the real world. It's very elitist. And it's weird because when you're in it, you f you're always taught to be humble. You think that you're really humble. But I started to realize in China when I would really like listen to other people and learn about them is that I was a total elitist. It was I was embarrassed. I thought that I was better than them. And I all the time I had been thinking I was so loving. And that's what kind of disturbed me, too, was this distorted love. So when you start hanging around normal people and then uh, you also are kind of hiding the fact that you're Jehovah's Witness because you don't tell anyone, you have to sort of play along with their rules. And so I started to, yeah, like do things that they did and like read things that they read, things that I had steered away from before suddenly became really like part of my education. I couldn't just leave Joe's Witnesses and become like an atheist or something. And I also couldn't leave Joe's Witnesses and become a Catholic. It's just like this weird thing that it's such a part of the fiber of your being that you have to almost transition from one set of thinking to the other. So first it started to get weird with Jean because over a period of time I started to pull away a little. So I would meet her, but we had been in the habit of meeting every single week. And it was more than just a Bible study. It was a friendship by this point, a very close friendship. But I couldn't sit there and like open the books and teach these things that I myself was now questioning because they're also like really severe things like telling her she can't be friends with people in the world, telling her that she needs to, you know, convert her family. She needs to preach. She needs to get baptized. So then at the beginning, I think I started to just, I would meet with her and then I would just put the books aside <laughs> and it was like a lot more fun. We could just talk and still never addressing with her the deeper problem because I knew it would be so confusing for her because she was already getting pretty deep into it by this point. So as the time went on, I felt like finally it kind of came to this ethical problem. I felt like I had to say something to her because here I had been responsible for indoctrinating her in things that I now thought were not true. So 
I ended up telling her, having a conversation, just saying in very vague, ununderstandable terms for her that basically, well, you remember all those things that I told you before that we were studying in that book? I think maybe you should just like, don't take it what I said as the truth, because maybe there's some things that I just, I'm starting to realize maybe aren't exactly what I thought they were. And that kind of was sort of the nail in my coffin because Jean went to another one of the Jehovah's Witness sisters that she knew in Shanghai that I had introduced her to and talked to her about it because she was really confused. Basically, in the structure of the Jehovah's Witness religion, there's um, there's not really priests or anything, but there's elders, and there are um, usually a few in every congregation, and they're the ones that kind of decide whether you should be kicked out. or So um, the elders called me and said that they wanted to have a meeting with me at um, Starbucks. I met them uh, a couple days after that. So they basically asked me why what I believed, what I had, whether why I wasn't coming to associate with the witnesses at the meeting anymore and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, I didn't tell them too much because I kind of knew I was treading on sort of a thin line. And if you get branded as an apostate, it's very serious. They basically just told me that they weren't going to disfellowship me, but they said that I had to, if I came back, like tried to associate with anyone, that they would disfellowship me. So basically the instructions were that I was to just shut up and stay away. And so that's just how we left it. I just walked away and had to start a whole new life. <laughs> if I had come back and not changed, then they would have disfellowshipped me. And I think that if someone like saw me now, they would say hello. Whereas if you're disfellowshipped, if I was like walking by, they would totally not even acknowledge my existence. But I mean, there's a good chance even being on this podcast, I might get disfellowshipped. <laughs> <laughs> Amber Scora's writing and podcasts are on our website, amberscora.com. Brandon Stosi is a contributing editor to The Believer and editor of the music website Pitchfork. I'm in Brooklyn in my apartment, uh, in my bedroom with the door shut, and my uh, son and wife are playing in the front. I brought five five-word reviews, and, and they're uh, five reviews of indie rock guitar rock records. Five-word record review number one. Fiddler, Fiddler, Milo goes to the skate park. That's the first one. It happened so fast, I, I missed it. Will you, will, you, will you say it again? <laughs> sure. Fiddler, it's self-titled, Fiddler, Milo goes to the skate park. And so there's a Descendants album called Milo Goes to College. <clears throat> I'm just trying to unpack the review here. This is... Uh, the idea being that it's the descendants in the skate park. The thing with Fiddler is there are these young guys from the West Coast, and they sing about pretty sophomoric stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of songs about cheap beer. Listening to them kind of reminded me of the way the descendants actually had tons of songs about farts and flatulence. Five-word review number two. Ice Age, You're Nothing. Copenhagen's Crass, Double Guitars, Hooks. I think the one problem with five-word reviews, they end up sounding like I'm trying to read a poem, which is not what I'm trying to do. (laughs) 
five-word review number three. California X, California X. Likes, dinosaur, sunshine, convertibles, weed. Dinosaur is an illusion here. Right, right? that's an allusion to uh, Dinosaur Jr. Um, great uh, guitar rock, indie rock band from uh, Massachusetts. This this band, California X, has that kind of sound, this kind of big... Um, you don't really even care what they're singing about. It's really mostly in that guitar sound that they make themselves interesting. Five word review number four, Parquet Courts, Light Up Gold. If Steve Malkmus fronted Wire. Five word record review number five, Pissed Jeans. Honeys, and uh, the review is David Yao living in Allentown. If you know who David Yao is, I think then it immediately makes sense. And if someone didn't, David Yao is the vocalist of uh, the band The Jesus Lizard, who, when when I was younger. I saw them play at CBGB's. By the end of the, sh the set, he was nude. Someone had knocked him out, and he fell into the audience. The band stopped playing and found the guy in the crowd and beat him up. And it was just this very intense experience. And they, they played noise rock with this very jazz-trained kind of drummer and bassist. And so this really, really tight music with a singer who was completely out of control, which was an interesting contrast. So Piss Jeans have a, a similar sound, but their vocalist, Matt, is singing more about smashing his computer at his desk because he's angry at his coworker. More information about all the bands Brandon just mentioned is on our website, radio.believermag.com. For one of our final stories, we'll hear about the way sound functions as a character in a new independent film. We wanted sound to like stand out and be much louder and more robust than it actually is in this movie because it is a character in the movie. My name is Rich Bolenya and I'm a sound designer and I worked on the movie Nobody Walks. My name is Rai Russo Young. I co-wrote Nobody Walks with Lena Dunham and I directed the film. Olivia Thurlby's character is a 23-year-old artist named Martine and she goes to stay in the pool house of a Los Angeles family where John Krasinski is a sound designer. And that is the power of directional microphones. They're kind of like magic wands. And he's going to help her make sounds and sound design for this bug film that she's making. It's a movie starring scorpions and ants. It's sort of an art film, avant-garde, experimental, Maya Darren-esque. It was unusual because it, it almost 
makes me a character in the movie and I kind of tried to do that in the sense of like I was creating sounds for this film within the film. So Martine arrives in Los Angeles and basically causes a big ruckus with everyone in the family for better and for worse. Rye, um, she had this whole idea that she wanted it to be like the score would kind of evolve out of this, the sound of the movie. My name is Will Bates. Um, I composed the score to Nobody Walks. With a lot of films, sound is something that the viewer is usually relatively unconscious of. And I think with Nobody Walks, I really consciously wanted the viewer to be able to notice the sound and to stop and to listen and to be become aware of this whole other world. So in this scene, what uh, John Krasinski slash Peter does is he, is he asks her to guess the sound. Here, come on, I want to show you something. All right, just lay down right there. Keep the headphones on. Close your eyes. You tell me what do you think you're hearing, right? Okay. No, it sounds like a concert, but far away. It's the highway. With those mountains in the back, it echoes through the entire canyon. I sort of split the difference between what it actually is, which is distant traffic, and what she thinks it is, which is kind of a rock concert. I add a bass element to make it sound like there's like bass coming from this concert. Um, there's also a wind in, in a chimney. Yeah. Close your eyes. So let's play the second sound okay. of the guessing game. And what he's actually doing is he's just rubbing the bathroom wall. That's multiple things. That's actually just the actual sound of my finger rubbing I think it was like a music stand or something. And I thought you would maybe hear the sound of what's happening behind the wall, which is more of like a kind of tonal environment. That's actually just a recording of an empty house. The scene opens with Martine's character turning off a faucet. We, maybe five years ago, got a chance to record in a submarine off of Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. The first uh, shot is the sound of this submarine valve switch. I always try to find sounds that, like, just are a little bit more interesting than what you're hearing. And that's a submarine basically acting as a just residential shower. You know, Rye loved the idea of it being kind of like a warm L.A., like really similar to the sort of photography of the movie, that it has that sort of rich warmth to it. So the idea of like wind sounds and that kind of thing. So I've got these like plastic tubes, you know, those plastic tubes that you twirl around your head. And I kind of uh, took a knife and, and made sure that it was in the same key as the track. And then I actually got another one and, and played it so that the two of them would harmonize against each other. 
So in this scene, we see Peter and Martine making sounds. She squeezes a lemon really close up. I ended up not using a lemon. I used the grapefruit because it was bigger and it sounded a little better. I recorded vegetables too, like a tomato, but that was pretty gross and messy. The grapefruit had a huge cameo in this movie. <laughs> so if you ever want the sound of bug feet, use a grapefruit. That's, my, that's the moral of this story. <laughs> Nothing sounds so much like John Krasinski trying to make a lemon sound like insects so much as a grapefruit does. That's the moral of that story, which was produced by Jenna Weiss Berman. Let's hear one more selection from Grill Marcus, and then later on, we'll all get together on the website, where everything you heard on this podcast will be mounded together in a little pyre. Grill's final selection this month is a new book by Percival Everett. He's written... I don't know how many novels he's written, 13 or 14 over the past 20 years or so. And uh, there are in no way uh, things that you can categorize in terms of theme, in terms of style or approach. Some of them are wildly experimental. Some of them are, are picaresque. Some are long and some are short. Uh, some have to do with Greek gods fighting among themselves. This book... His latest novel is called Percival Everett by Virgil Russell. And turns out Percival Everett was also the name of his father. And, but it's not a memoir. Um, one Percival, Percival Everett, who in, in the most abstruse manner kind of turns into somebody named Virgil Russell and then turns back into himself, is writing about his father and also himself in ways that it's just dizzying to keep up with. Um, I love the opening. I'm a big fan of uh, walks into a bar jokes. And this opens... Let me tell you about my dream, my father said. Two black men walk into a bar, and the rosy-faced barkeep says, we don't serve knickers in here. And one of the men points to the other and says, but he's the president. And the barkeep says, that's his problem. So the president walks over and gives the barkeep a box and says, these are chill mark chocolates. And the barkeep says, thank you and reaches over to shake the president's hand. The president jumps back, says, what's that? And the barkeep says, it's a hand buzzer, a gag. Get used to it, asshole. Well, wouldn't you want to read what comes next? Many thanks to Percival Everett for reading the first chapter of his new novel, Percival Everett by Virgil Russell, published this month by Grey Wolf. I'd also like to thank the rest of this month's contributors, including Nick Offerman, who listeners may know as the character Ron Swanson on NBC's Parks and Recreation. All right, thank you, and good luck with the Lord's work. This podcast was produced by me and Ross Simonini and engineered by Ross and J.C. Swatek at KCRW. Our associate producer is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Many thanks to Harriet Ells, Jennifer Farrow, and everyone at KCRW, whose superb work is available now at kcrw.com. Thanks also to Heidi Julevitz, Vendela Vida, Andy Mudd, Sheila Hetty, and the rest of the staff of The Believer magazine. Language assistance in this episode comes from Matthew Derby and Kevin Moffat. Devorah Lauder went to Percival Everett's apartment in Paris to record him reading from his novel. Additional thanks to Janet Saidi, Scott Pham, and the staff of KBIA Columbia, along with our two powerful Mizzou interns, Ted Hart and Cooper Middlehauser. Organ music in this episode was unearthed by the intense young New York artist Brian Balot. You know, I'm a 
you know, an artist that has uh, an endless waterfall of distractions and inner chatter. So when I uh, listen to found cassettes, I can finally turn that all down and uh, jump into someone else's uh, thought progression. Subsequent episodes of this podcast will be available for download at kcrw.com slash believer or at radio.believermag.com. Leave us a coruscating voicemail at 573-238-8453. Email a letter to the editor, a sound file, a song, to organist at believermag.com. Next month is the magazine's 10-year anniversary. Go to believermag.com to find out about celebratory events in multiple American cities near you 